So I have a confession to make. As much as I love all things nature, there is a native species of wildlife that I really don't like. Now, I'm not going to go so far as to say that I'm afraid of them, but I am afraid of some of the things they can give me. But still, I would never call for their complete eradication. And I'm talking about ticks. But I have to admit, reluctantly, that even ticks are kind of interesting when you look more closely at them. So today, I'm going to face my fears and take a closer look at my least favorite creature, and I'll tell you the best ways to avoid having them hitch a ride on you. I'm your host, Tim the Nature Nerd O'Hara, and this is the Dispatches from the Forest podcast. When I was just a little nature nerd, my dad worked for the Boy Scouts, so we spent our summers living at the scout camp, and one of my earliest memories is my mom sitting on the porch of our cabin with a can of 3-in-1 household oil and a pair of tweezers removing ticks from the camp staff. Turns out you can't spend a lot of time in nature and not, at least occasionally, find a tick on you. But what exactly are these little vampires? Ticks are arachnids. They're not spiders, but they are related to spiders. Now, like spiders, they have eight legs, but unlike spiders, which have two distinct body parts, a cephalothorax and an abdomen, with ticks, these parts are completely fused. I think they look more like tiny crabs than they do like spiders. Ticks are external parasites, feeding on the blood of mammals, birds, and occasionally reptiles and amphibians. Adult ticks have pear-shaped bodies and become engorged with blood when they feed. Thankfully, I think, ticks are small. Adult ticks are around 3 to 5 millimeters long, depending on their age, sex, species, and, for lack of a better term, fullness. There are three families of ticks, although one family is composed of just a single species, and it's native only to southern Africa. The rest of the ticks, and the ones you and I are likely to find, are divided between the other two families, most easily distinguished as hard ticks and soft ticks. Here in the United States, we have about 80 species of hard tick and 10 species of soft tick. These families have scientific names, but I'm not going to torture you by trying to pronounce them correctly. Hard ticks have a hard shield on their dorsal surface, known as the scutum, and a beak-like structure at the front containing the mouth parts. Mouthparts of soft ticks are actually located on the underside of their body. In general, ticks are found wherever their host species are found. Migrating birds can carry ticks with them on their migrations, and they're widely distributed around the world, but they flourish most in warm, humid climates. For an ecosystem to support ticks, it has to satisfy two requirements. First, there needs to be a large enough population of host species, and second, it needs to be humid enough for ticks to both remain hydrated and undergo metamorphosis. Colder temperatures inhibit the ability of their eggs to develop into larvae, which means that increasing temperatures from climate change could allow ticks to expand their range. Ticks tend to prefer edge habitats where the forest meets more open areas, and they're usually found in areas that have shady, moist leaf litter with an overstory of trees or shrubs. Now that said, ticks are extremely tough, hardy, and resilient little critters. They can survive in a near vacuum for up to 30 minutes. 
Their slow metabolism during dormant periods lets them go a long time between meals. During droughts, they can endure dehydration and go without feeding for as long as 18 weeks. To help prevent dehydration, ticks hide in humid spots on the forest floor, or they absorb water from low-humidity air by secreting a fluid from their salivary glands onto their external mouthparts. This fluid pulls additional moisture from the air, which the tick can then re-ingest. The technical term for this fluid is hygroscopic fluid. And while they thrive in warm climates, ticks can withstand temperatures of just above zero degrees for over two hours and can survive temperatures between 20 and 29 degrees Fahrenheit for at least two weeks. They've even been found in Antarctica feeding on penguins. Now, ticks have a four-stage life cycle, egg, larva, nymph, and adult. Depending on the species, hard ticks can have either a one, two, or three host lifestyle. Soft ticks also have a multi-host lifestyle and develop through up to seven nymph stages, each one requiring a blood meal. Because they feed on blood, ticks are vectors for many serious diseases like Rocky Mountain Spotted Fever, Encephalitis, and of course, Lyme disease, all of which can affect both humans and other animals. Ticks deposit their eggs into leaf litter. After several months, larvae hatch and crawl into low-lying vegetation. Larval ticks hatch with six legs. They acquire the other two after a blood meal and molting into the nymph stage. In addition to being used for walking, you know, like, well, legs, ticks have a unique sensory structure on their first pair of legs. Called a Haller's organ, it can perceive infrared light and detect odors and chemicals emanating from a potential host. It can also sense changes in temperature and air currents. When stationary, ticks keep their legs folded tightly against their bodies. Now, like I said, hard ticks have a one, two, or three host lifestyle. One host ticks remain on the host through the larval, nymph, and adult stages, only leaving the host to lay eggs. Newly hatched larvae immediately seek out a host and start the cycle again. The life cycle of a two host tick usually spans two years. Eggs are laid in the fall and hatch in the winter. The following spring, the larvae emerge and find their first host. They remain on the first host until they develop into nymphs. Once engorged, they drop off the host and find a safe place in the natural environment to molt into adults, again, usually during the winter. The second spring, the adult tick seeks out a second host on which to attach. This can be the same as the first host, but it's often something bigger. Once attached, they feed and mate, and the female drops off to deposit her eggs in the environment, and round and round we go. Most hard ticks, however, require three hosts, and accordingly, their life cycle typically spans three years. Females will lay thousands of eggs in the fall, which again hatch in the winter, and the larvae emerge in the spring. These larvae attach and feed primarily on small mammals and birds. During the summer, the larvae become engorged, and in the fall, they drop off the first host to molt and become nymphs. The following spring, the nymphs emerge and seek out another host, often a small rodent, and the cycle repeats. The nymphs become engorged and drop off the second host in the fall to molt and become adults. The adults emerge in the spring and seek out a larger host, often a large mammal like cattle or even humans. Adults mate on the third host. Females engorge on blood and drop off to lay eggs, while males feed very little and remain on the host to continue mating with other females. 
The life cycle of soft ticks is a little bit different. First of all, like I mentioned earlier, depending on the species, they can go through up to seven nymph stages, called instars, requiring a blood meal each time. For soft ticks, in addition to egg laying, mating also usually occurs detached from the host. Larvae find a host and feed anywhere from a few hours to several days, depending on the species of tick. After feeding, the larva drops off the host and molts into the first nymphal instar. It then seeks out and feeds on a second host, which a lot of times is actually the same as the first host within an hour of molting. This process occurs repeatedly until the last nymphal instar occurs and the tick molts into an adult. As adults, these ticks feed rapidly and periodically for their entire life cycle, which can range from months to years. During feeding, any excess fluid is excreted by a structure called a coxal glands, spelled C-O-X-A-L, a process unique to soft ticks. In some species, adult females lay eggs after each feeding. A female soft tick can lay a few hundred to over a thousand eggs over the course of her lifetime. Okay, so to this point, you might have noticed that I've kind of glossed over the whole feeding on blood thing. So now it's time to go a little deeper into all of that action. Ticks are what we call ectoparasites, meaning that they live on the outside of the host body. And they're also what's called obligate hematophages, meaning they need to consume blood to survive and to move on from one life stage to the next. Now, ticks can fast for long periods of time, but eventually they'll die if they can't find a host. There's no other food source that they can switch to. Blood is high in protein, iron, and salt, but low in carbohydrates, lipids, and vitamins. To make up for this deficiency, ticks have evolved to have a symbiotic relationship with certain species of bacteria that can provide these missing nutrients, primarily B vitamins. When researchers eliminated these bacteria, they saw a decrease in tick survival, molting, fertility, and egg viability, and an increase in physical abnormalities. Ticks locate potential hosts by sensing odor, body heat, moisture, and vibrations in the environment. A common misconception about ticks is that they jump onto their host or they drop from trees, but the truth is they can't jump or fly. Thank goodness. Hard ticks find hosts by lying in wait, in a position known as questing. When questing, ticks cling to leaves and grasses using their third and fourth pairs of legs. They hold their first pair of legs outstretched, waiting to grasp and climb onto any passing host. Tick questing heights tend to be correlated with the size of the desired host. Nymphs and smaller species tend to quest close to the ground, where they're more likely to encounter small mammals or birds. Adults climb higher into the vegetation where larger hosts might be encountered. Some hard tick species are more like hunters and lurk near places where hosts are likely to rest. Once they detect that a host is nearby, they'll crawl or run across the intervening surface. Soft ticks tend to find their hosts in their nests, burrows, or caves. They use the same stimuli as hard ticks to identify hosts, with body heat and odors being the main factors. Many soft ticks feed primarily on birds, though some also feed on small mammals. Some ticks attach to their hosts quickly, while others wander around the host searching for thinner skin, like in the ears of mammals. 
Depending on the species and life stage, preparing to feed can take from 10 minutes to 2 hours, which explains why I can get home from a hike or a mountain bike ride and find a tick walking around on me hours later. I've had the sneaky little buggers show up hours after a shower and in the middle of the night. Once it finds a suitable feeding spot, the tick grasps the host's skin and cuts into the surface. Then it inserts something called a hypostome, a calcified harpoon-like structure near the mouth area that lets them anchor themselves firmly in place on the host while sucking blood. Some hard ticks strengthen this attachment by secreting a cement-like compound. Ticks also excrete an anticoagulant to prevent blood from clotting. Their saliva also contains proteins with anti-inflammatory properties, called, appropriately enough, evasins, which allow ticks to feed for as much as 8 to 10 days without being detected by the host. Interestingly, researchers are studying these evasins, hoping to develop drugs to help treat heart disease, heart attack, and stroke. So, I guess ticks aren't all bad. Hard ticks remain in place until they're completely engorged. Their weight can increase 200 to 600 times compared to their pre-feeding weight. Let's do the math on that for a second. I weigh about 160 pounds. Imagine if I sat down to dinner and left the table weighing between 32 and 96,000 pounds. To accommodate this expansion, cell division takes place to facilitate enlargement of the cuticle. They actually become more tick. The cuticle of soft ticks, on the other hand, stretches to accommodate the fluid ingested. It gets bigger, but it doesn't grow new cells. The weight of the soft ticks increases five to tenfold over the unfed state. In addition to being a source of potentially life-saving medications, ticks actually do serve some other functions in the ecosystem, which is why I would never advocate for their complete eradication, no matter how much I might dislike them. Mites and nematodes feed on ticks, and they're a minor nutritional resource for a lot of birds. Magpies and other birds are known to pick ticks directly off cattle or other large ungulates. And, by transmitting various debilitating diseases, ticks can actually help control the population of certain animals and help prevent overgrazing. But of course those same diseases can also be transmitted to humans. Ticks are vectors for a number of infections caused by bacteria, viruses, and protozoa. And since a single tick can harbor more than one pathogen, it can make diagnosis of these infections difficult. In the United States, Lyme disease is the most common disease transmitted by ticks. In about 80% of Lyme disease cases, it starts with a characteristic bullseye rash. This rash usually appears one to two weeks after the bite. If treated immediately with antibiotics, 85 to 90% of people make a full recovery within 30 days. If left untreated, however, the infection can spread to the nervous system, heart, or joints, and potentially cause permanent damage. The tick-borne illness that scares me the most, though, is transmitted by the Lone Star tick and can give you an allergy to red meat. As a fan of steaks and burgers, that is truly frightening. Now, with the possible exception of widespread DDT use, which, as we've learned the hard way, is a very, very bad idea for many other animals, attempts to limit the population or distribution of ticks have been unsuccessful. 
There's some species of parasitic wasp that lay their eggs on ticks, which might be helpful at controlling their populations, but where these wasps are not native, introducing them could prove problematic in the long run. Predators and competitors of tick host species can indirectly reduce the density of infected nymphs, leading to a lower tick-borne disease risk by reducing the density or tick burden of what's known as reservoir-competent hosts, hosts that can harbor the infectious pathogens that ticks can then transmit to others. For example, a study in the Netherlands found that the number of larval ticks on bank voles and wood mice was lower at sites with significant red fox and stone marten populations, the predators of these small mammals. Another study in the northeastern United States found that the incidence of the bacteria that causes Lyme disease was negatively correlated with red fox populations. More foxes, less bacteria possibly because foxes decrease the density of white-footed mice, which are the most significant host of the Lyme disease-causing bacteria. Other natural forms of control for ticks are birds like the helmeted guinea fowl, a species that consumes mass quantities of ticks, and possums, who are fastidious groomers, swallowing many ticks as they clean themselves and making them net destroyers of ticks. Possums kill about 90% of the ticks that attempt to feed on them. Basically, high animal diversity has a strong protective effect against tick-borne disease. When it comes to ticks, a healthy ecosystem is a healthy ecosystem, if you get my drift. So what can you do to protect yourself from ticks? One of the most common pieces of advice I've read is that if you know you're going to be in tick habitat, you should wear closed-toed shoes, a long sleeve shirt tucked into your pants, and tuck your pant legs into your boots and socks. I'm going to be honest. At the height of summer, you will not find me heading into the woods wearing long sleeves and long pants, unless for some reason it's absolutely necessary. The risk of heat stroke outweighs the risk of picking up a tick. Wearing light-colored clothes can make ticks easier to spot if you get one on you. You can use a tick repellent that has DEET or Icardin on your clothes and exposed skin, following the manufacturer's directions, of course. Search your clothes and body regularly for ticks, paying close attention to areas where ticks can hide, like the groin, belly button, armpits, scalp, or behind the ears and knees. Putting outdoor clothing through the dryer cycle for 60 minutes on high heat before washing will kill any ticks that have escaped detection and would otherwise survive in the washer. But what if you find a tick on you? Well, first of all, you should take some comfort in this. Not all ticks in an infective area carry pathogens, and both attachment of the tick and a long feeding session are necessary for any disease to be transmitted. Consequently, tick bites often don't lead to infection, especially if the ticks are removed within 36 hours. There are several folk remedies for removing a tick. Touching it with a hot match is a common one, Others include covering it with petroleum jelly or nail polish, or three-in-one household oil, in theory to suffocate it. These methods are all supposed to make the tick back out of the skin on its own, but they often have the opposite effect, forcing the tick to hold on tighter, burrow deeper, and potentially deposit more of its disease-carrying secretions into the wound, increasing the risk of infection. 
According to the CDC, the best way to remove adult ticks is using a fine-tipped tweezers to grasp the tick as close to the skin as possible and pull gently upward with a steady, even pressure, being careful not to squeeze the body. But that's easier said than done. The drawback to using tweezers is that it has the potential to squeeze unwanted toxins into the body in the process of trying to remove the tick, or to remove the body but leave the mouth parts embedded. You can also use a specific tick removal tool. I have one called a tick key on my keychain. There's some reputable sources that recommend using something like wart remover to freeze the tick while it's still embedded, killing it instantly and making it possible to just brush it out. Regardless of what method you use, always disinfect the site of the bite. After removal, ticks that are still alive, and you'd be surprised, like I said, they're hardy little bloodsuckers, can be disposed of by flushing them down the toilet, placing them in a container of soapy water or alcohol, or sticking them to tape that can be folded over and thrown away. This is one case where I'll say, don't worry about taking them outside to set them free. But hey, you do you. And with that, I'll bring this episode to an end. Thank you as always for listening. Please click those like and follow buttons. It's free and it can potentially help me out a lot. If you want to support future episodes of the podcast, here are all the ways you can do that. Get yourself some sweet Dispatches from the Forest merchandise, and then when your friends ask them about it, tell them to listen too. You can find the Dispatches from the Forest merch store at cafepress.com forward slash Dispatches from the Forest. We've got t-shirts, water bottles, hoodies, stickers, and much, much more consider becoming a patron. You can do that at patreon.com forward slash dispatches from the forest. One-time donations can be made through PayPal. Dispatches from the forest at gmail.com is both my PayPal address and how you can message me if you have any questions, comments, or suggestions for future episodes. For additional content, follow Dispatches from the Forest on Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok. And keep an eye out Dispatches from the Forest will be coming soon to YouTube as well. I'm your host, Tim the Nature Nerd O'Hara, reminding you to go outside and get dirty. But make sure to check carefully for ticks when you're done. The Dispatches from the Forest podcast is a production of Dispatches from the Forest and may not be used or rebroadcast whole or in part without express written permission.